Could you imagine how terrible it would be to be on that raft in the middle of the ocean just drifting for 49 days. You, you started on this little trip, or for him, he was actually docked, and he had enough food, he had enough water to last for a few days, but after a while, that gave out, and so the only thing you have to eat are fish that you can catch, and then you've got to literally take part of your boat apart to cook the fish, and then the only thing you have to drink is the seawater, the salt water that's around you that you filter through your shirt, which, by the way, just in case you're curious, it doesn't take the salt out of the water, so you're really just drinking salt water for all of those days, right? And so I want you to just imagine being adrift for those 49 days, and the physical trauma, for most of us probably sitting in this room or watching online, for most of us, the physical trauma would be too much for us to bear, that we couldn't bear those 49 days, but I imagine... That beyond the physical trauma of those 49 days, there was an emotional and, and, and kind of a um, mental trauma as well. I want you to think, if, put yourself in this young man's place for 49 days with no power at all. 49 days with no cell signal at all. 49 days without any social media connection whatsoever. Now, some of you are nodding because you're like, this sounds like the best 49 days of my life. Except try it sometime, Okay. 49 days, honestly, of complete isolation, not knowing what is happening around you or what's going on in the whole world around you. 49 days of, of having nobody to talk to, nobody around except you all by yourself. And this, this mental anguish must be so much, not only that you're completely isolated, but I want you to think, he's completely out of control. He has no way to steer this boat. He's drifted for 1,200 miles. He has no idea where he's at or where he's headed. And, and he has no control, even if he wanted to get back to where he was. He can't get there, and he has no ability to get there, and he probably doesn't even know how to get back to where he wants to be in the first place. He is completely at the mercy of the forces and circumstances that are around him. He has no control over his direction or how fast he goes. The wind determines how fast he goes. The current and the waves, the ocean, they determine which direction he's going. And he's just completely useless sitting on this raft with one sole purpose, just survive. And maybe... Just maybe a ship's going to come by that will help me out. And I don't know if you heard that or not, but several ships came by and none of them stopped to help him. And I imagine that every time one of these big ships came, he got excited and he started yelling and jumping. And I, at least that's what I'd be doing if I was on this raft. And, and then those, they just keep going. And you just watch them disappear off into the sunset. Forty-nine days. No connection. No control just at the mercy of everything that's around you. And as terrible as that is, for some of us sitting in this room, and for some of us watching online, and some of us that will listen to this message later, you are content living your life the exact same way that this guy is living these 49 days. That you are not on a direct course. You have not plotted a path for your future or your, your destination. You are simply living this life of drifting through this life where every day is the same and you are just simply trying to survive one day to the next. And every single day you are just drifting and you feel like your life is completely out of control and you have no options except just to exist. And for some of you, you have chosen this lifestyle because for some of you, this sounded awesome when we were young. This sounded great. It sounded very liberated and free and that, that we could just live this carefree life. We could just drift through life and not have to make any choices. And we could just drift through life and just let everything else determine where we went. Except you've come to a point now where you feel the isolation. 
You come to a point this morning and today where you feel like you've lost connection and you can't even connect in a meaningful way, even to the ships that pass off in a distance. You are far, far away from where you want to be, and yet you have no option of getting back there this morning. For some of you, that isn't 49 days. That's how you've lived years and years of your life. And so we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2 this morning because the very first warning in the book of Hebrews kind of alternates between uh, here's a lesson and then here's a warning, here's a lesson and here's a warning. And the very first warning he gives us in Hebrews chapter 2 is don't be a drifter. Don't be like this where you just let everything else determine your course of action, where you just let circumstances and situations and the forces around you determine the direction of not only your life but your eternity. And, and so don't be a drifter. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to work through the first four verses this morning, and then next week we'll finish up chapter 2. But and these first four verses are, are so strong and so powerful, uh, we, we could really spend a lot of time on them, but we're going to spend as much as we can on them. And, and so in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer is this clear warning that you are in danger. If you're just drifting through life, if you don't have clear direction and, and clear instruction then you are in severe danger this morning. So I want you to read with me Hebrews chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 4. But verse 1 starts off. It says, We must, therefore, pay even more attention to what we have heard, so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through the angels was legally binding, and every transgression and disobedience received of just punishment. Verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God was testifying by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. Let's pray together. God, this morning, I am praying for many of us who are drifting. God, who are not clear in the direction that we are headed. I'm praying this morning, God, very clearly for us who are just floating through and trying to make life work just day in and day out. God, I'm praying this morning that your message and your gospel shine so brightly into our darkness and so clearly into our ears, God, that we will study the course that we will write the direction, God, that we will be headstrong and set in our direction towards you. God, I pray this morning that we are faced with this wonderful question of what are we going to do with this great salvation? And so, God, I'm praying this morning for us who are, are firm and us who are solid in our foundation and, and, and the salvation. God, I pray that we realize the greatness of it. But God, I'm praying for those who may not be where they should be this morning. God, who may not be firm in their foundations, God. God, I pray this morning that we not only hear the gospel, but we will cling to it. And God, that we won't neglect this great salvation any longer, Father. And so, God, I pray in this stillness, in the calmness of this moment, the calmness of our hearts, God, that you will speak, not just speak, God, but scream loudly and clearly to us through your word and through your message this morning. God, let us land at the port where you're supposed to be at, Father. God, so let us see your great salvation and cling to it. God, let us be students sitting at your feet this morning, clinging to your words. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
One of the things that President Franklin Roosevelt was famous for was his fireside chats. And many of you uh, may have studied these in history. Some of you may remember them, that, that this was his way of uh, honestly getting around the newspapers because he could take his voice straight to the American people. And he would get on the radio and he would uh, kind of talk politics for a little bit. And part of it was to encourage the American people as they were struggling through some things. And uh, he, he made a, a kind of a pattern of these things. And uh, he really just focused their attention on encouraging and, and and getting the American people to persevere and focus. There are better days coming. There's just there's trouble now, but there's things that are happening, and you need to know about them. And so I'm going to encourage you to stay on this course. And so in April of 1938, he took to the radio station because there were two problems that he saw facing America at the time. And this sounds almost like where we're at today, the two problems was there was this looming recession, that the country was, their economy was slipping, and they were almost to the point, they were getting ready to, to declare a recession happening. And for some of us, we've been through recessions, we're like, yeah, that's not too bad, that's not a problem. Except you need to remember that in 1938, the country was only five years out of the Great Depression. So if all of a sudden things start going well, and then they start to dip down, everybody's mind goes back five years to, oh my goodness, do you remember how bad it was? And so when this economy starts to slip a little bit, he goes on the radio to address this and, and remind them, hey, we're working on this. And also there was this problem. There was all these divisions amongst the, the, the American people. There were all these groups that were dividing our nation, and they couldn't get along. They wouldn't see eye to eye, and they wouldn't compromise on anything. So there was all this tension going on in our nation at the time. I don't know about you, but... Uh, that sounds like I, I want to hear FDR's voice today on my radio, right? I, I just want to hear it uh, to speak into these possibilities. And so he, he gets on the radio and he talks to these specific steps that he's hoping Congress will do and address these specific problems. And uh, as he gets kind of at the end of his chat, he ends his chat by saying this. He says, I believe that we have been right in the course that we have charted to abandon our purpose of building a greater and more stable and more tolerant America would be to miss the tide and perhaps to miss the port. I propose to sail ahead. I feel secure or feel sure that your hopes and I feel sure that your help are with me. For to reach the port, we must sail. Sail, not lie at anchor. Sail, not drift. Later, he was asked about that particular chat, and some of you may know that Roosevelt, he was an avid sailor. He loved to get on the, the water and sail, and he said simply this, that a ship is only safe in two places. One, when it is anchored, and two, when it is sailing at sea. If it's anchored, it will never get where it needs to go, but if it is drifting, it is never safe. A boat that drifts never has directions, will never reach its point, and will never accomplish what it was meant to. A boat that is drifting always is in danger because it has neither direction nor security. You see, the writer of Hebrews gives this same warning in the second chapter of this book. He says that instead of a ship, he talks about a soul. And he says the soul is only safe when it is anchored and when it's steadfast or when it's on a plotted course. And the first start of this book is this beautiful warning uh, that spiritual drift is extremely dangerous. You see, the drifter is someone who isn't anchored to something solid. A drifter is someone who has no clear direction and no option of this is where they want to go. They have no direction and no security. And they, like the boy on that raft in the video we saw earlier, the drifter, they are just at the, the mercy of those things that are around them. They have no course. They have no direction. They're, they're just all these exterior forces are determining things. So when the conditions change, 
change, they change. When, when the situation changes, they change. And they just drift through life. And so the writer of Hebrews goes to this great extent to give us this warning. There is great danger when we allow ourselves to be just drifters. And so he gives us this topic, and he kind of tells us that there's some things you can do to prevent this drifting. And the first thing that you need to do to prevent this drifting from happening is that you need to hold on to what you have. It's the easiest and best way to, be, to prevent becoming a spiritual drifter is hold on to what you have. Stay on the course that's laid out for you and laid out before you. Don't get distracted by all the other things that are around you. See, when a sailor is getting ready to go to one place to another, he has a certain course that he's on. He has a certain direction. And, and for them, they would have a certain degree. They would point their ship, this is the degree, this is where I want to go. And I'm going to make sure that regardless Regardless of what the waves do, regardless of what the winds do, regardless of what goes on around me, this is the course that I'm going to stick on. Because this is the course that's going to get me to the destination that I want to be. And so in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, he starts this great message um, and he gives this warning. You need to make sure that you hang on to what you have. Hold on to those directions. Hold on to what you have in the first place. Hold those directions. And before we jump into the specifics of that verse, I kind of want to remind you, of the context of not just this verse, but the whole book of Hebrews. You see, the whole book of Hebrews is really focused on the superiority of Christ and the supremacy and the sufficiency of the gospel. That what you have in Jesus is superior to everything else. It's superior to the Old Testament. What you have in Jesus is superior to the Moses. It's superior to Aaron and the priesthood. His sacrifice, his gospel is sufficient for you. You don't have to go back and do all these extra laws. You don't have to go back and do all these extra rules. Because the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, is sufficient. It is all that you need. That is the whole book of Hebrews. In fact, I shouldn't have... That's the whole thing right there, okay? And, and, but we're going to go into detail of it throughout the rest of the month. So don't think I just gave you the whole thing. So that's the premise. And so in specific, he starts talking specifically about how Jesus is superior and supreme to all these things. All right? So the first subject he tackles is angels. And we talked last week in chapter 1 really the last half of it, about how Jesus is superior to angels, right? And he's superior in who he is and how he was the creator and they are the creation. He is the one who they worship and they're the worshipers. And we went through all of that last week. And so if you want a great topic about angels, then, then go back and look that up next or last week. But I want you to understand that he's not finished with his discussion on angels. Just because we have a chapter break does not mean there's a subject change, right? Chapters and verses weren't added until later. And so when the writer writes this, this there's not a break here. His topic is still angels. And the reason he's still harping on angels is because we talked about this last week, that there, is this, there was this fascination with angels that became really this unhealthy obsession with angels that really became angelic worship, that people literally were praying to angels and they were praying for a special encounter with angels. They wanted an angel to come and visit them. And so they were literally praying to the angels for the angels to bring them some special message from God. Now, there's lots of problems with that, and we don't have time to go through all the problems with that theologically, but let me give you two problems with it to start with. The first problem is never in the Bible are we instructed to pray to angels. Never. Anywhere in the Bible does it never tells you to pray to an angel, okay? And we have examples of angels showing up, but none of those are the result of anybody praying for that to happen, right? I want you to think through all the times that an angel shows up, and every single time the person is shocked. It wasn't like they were praying, and, hey, Mary wasn't on her knees saying, hey, Gabriel, come bring me a message, and then Gabriel shows up. 
It's not that way. Nowhere in the Bible do people pray for or are we instructed to pray for a visit from an angel. We have these encounters with angels, but here's the second thing that's kind of shocking about this. this People are praying for this encounter. They're praying that an angel shows up. They're praying that this angel comes and gives them some kind of extra confirmation or extra message that's just for them. And so they're so excited. This is what they really want. And I always question that because all you need to go back and read the Old Testament and even parts of the New Testament, because when those encounters do happen, and there are records of them happening in the Old Testament and the New Testament, when those encounters do happen, they are not a pleasant event. Okay, It's not a sit-down, hey, let's touch by an angel, highway to heaven, Michael kind of experience, like all the shows in Hollywood depicts. Every one of them is this terrifying experience where the first thing the angel says is, don't be afraid, which means the person is automatically afraid of what just happened in their life. Okay, so all these people are wanting these angels to show up. But I imagine that if they did, most of them would take off running in the first place because they didn't know, realize what they were asking for in the first place. Right. So understand that, that when angels are encountered, it's not this these Hollywood depictions of them. But I want you to see that regardless of all of that, this this over fascination with angels has caused the early church really to kind of drift away from the gospel message. And not all the early church, but some of them are addressed here and he says listen in in verse one the writer gives this this very straight and he warns them very straight he says listen don't drift from this message in verse one he starts off he says we must therefore which anytime you see therefore it's pointing you back to what he's already said we must therefore because of christ is superior to the angels because of what we've already said we must therefore pay even more attention to what we have heard so that we will not drift Away In this verse, he uses a couple of nautical terms. That's the reason we kind of went with this, this drifting theme. And uh, So I want you to have in your mind this picture of a boat or maybe that raft that was on the video. And the first nautical term he uses is the word that we have translated as attention here in English. And the Greek word, it's a common uh, boating term that really means to bring a boat to land or bring a boat to a specific port. Right? And, and so it means that you've plotted the course and you stay on that course until you reach where you're supposed to be until you reach that port. And so we need to pay attention. We need to stay on course. We need to make sure that if we're going to arrive where we want to be, that our course has to be this direction. Right? So have this in your mind, that if, if you're on a boat and the boat captain says, this is where we're going, then his job is to make sure you get there. And he's not just going to let loose of the port and be like, all right, we're just going to drift until we get there. He has a steady, focused place. This is where I want to go. And I'm going to make sure we get there. Regardless of the winds, regardless of the currents, regardless of all this other stuff, my job is to pay attention to this direction. So the front of this boat is pointed directly at the port I wanted to be at. And when it's not, my job is to make sure I correct it so that it is getting back to where I wanted to be. We're not going to allow ourselves to drift and take some other, uh, uh, some other option. You see, because of the moment that the captain stops paying attention to the course that he's supposed to be on, there's this huge problem. And the problem is this second nautical term that he uses at the very end of the verse. He says, if we don't pay close attention, we have to so that we will not drift Away. Drifting is exactly what it says in, in nautical terms. Think about it. It means that you drift, or really it means that you pass by your intended port. All right? So there was a port you were aiming for, 
but you were drifting and you didn't stop or you didn't aim for it correctly, and so you missed the port that you were supposed to be at. And so this is the warning that he's giving you. Pay attention to the direction you're supposed to be headed. Pay attention to what you've heard and the instructions you have. Otherwise, you're going to miss the port that you're supposed to be at. You're going to land somewhere you don't want to be, or you're going to be just drifting out to sea, or you're going to land ashore somewhere, and all that's going to be catastrophic for you. Pay attention and don't miss the port where you're supposed to be. Now, I want to make sure we understand this in kind of the context of angelic worship and so in the praying for these angelic visits because the warning looks like this. Don't get distracted and don't get thrown off course by praying that an angel shows up and visits you and brings you some new message from God. Don't be praying for some new message or some new explanation or some new revelation because what you have is sufficient. What you need to do is focus on what you have and hold on to that versus praying for something extra. You don't need an angel to show up and tell the gospel to you because you have it right here in your hands. You have the gospel. You don't need an angel to show up and confirm it. You don't need an angel to show up and give you some kind of special message. And if that's what you're looking for, then what's going to happen is you're going to find yourself drifting off course because you're too busy looking for angels out on the horizon instead of focusing on the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And you're going to find yourself at a port you never meant to. To be. And so instead of praying for something new, you ought to be digging deeper into what you have. You ought to be spending more time in the message and, and the truth of the gospel rather than giving off to these, all these ideas that are out there and chasing all these other ideas and being distracted. And so I want you to understand for us this morning, I don't know anybody here that is praying to angels. I don't know, and maybe you are, and we need to talk about that later. I don't know anybody here that's in danger of angelic worship, but the reality is the warning of this passage is no less true for us today than it is for those that read it in the first century. Because for us, it may not be angels that we are praying for, but we are just as guilty of drifting off course of the gospel message. You see, because there are some of us that when we hear that our favorite author, our favorite pastor, or our favorite uh, writer is getting ready to publish a new book, man, we get so excited about this new book that's coming out. We get so excited about this new idea or this new, new production that's getting around. We get so excited about all this new stuff that's out there. And what he's telling you is the same message. Stop looking for all the new stuff and hold on to the good stuff of the gospel that you have. You see, we get more excited about new books and our favorite authors. We're in danger of drift if we spend more time reading devotionals and listening to sermons rather than reading our Bible. I've got to be honest with you, and I, I, some of you this may upset. I am not a huge fan of devotional books. All right? I know that may be shocking to some of you, and some of you are, I'm going to be very upset by this. And here's the reason why. Because there are so many of them, and, and great authors, let me tell you, great pastors have written devotional books. And the devotional book will, will tell you that it has one little phrase of a verse at the top. Not even the whole verse, just a phrase of the verse. And then they'll spend the whole rest of the page not even talking about this partial phrase of a verse. And there are so many Christians who said, I sat down and I spent my time with God because I read this partial phrase of verse, and then I read all this stuff that Charles Spurgeon or, or, or C.S. Lewis or, or some other great author, I read all this great stuff, and yet I spent time with God. You didn't spend time with God. You spent time with C.S. Lewis is what you did. There's a difference in what we give our attention to. There's a difference if we're allowing ourselves not to focus on the gospel and what we have because it's sufficient. And instead we're focused so much more on all the other stuff and so much more on all the other people that write about it. Let me be honest with you. If you spend more time reading about the Bible than reading the Bible, there is a problem. 
If you spend more time singing songs and worshiping in your car or watching videos or even listening to great sermons from great preachers than you do reading the Bible, there might be a problem with your spiritual direction. Because you're too busy looking for something new and different rather than anchoring yourself on what you have in the sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For some of us, we need to stop looking for new and different. We need to stop looking for better and and greater. We need to anchor ourselves on the Bible itself and spend more time on the Bible itself. It is more available now than it's ever been, and yet less read than it's ever been in its time of existence. Charles Spurgeon, or excuse me, Chuck Swindoll puts it this way. He says, if we aren't being transformed by the old stuff of the gospel message, then you need to put a pause on acquiring new information until you have the basics firmed up. We don't need a new book, a new seminar, a new blog, or a new podcast with the latest and greatest spiritual insight. What we need is to digest the basic spiritual truths that we already know and we already have. You see, for some of us, we are setting a course, a dangerous course, of drifting away from the gospel because we got away from the gospel itself. Because we put so much time and energy and effort and all this other stuff that was out there. And the whole time the book of Hebrews says, listen, stop looking for new stuff when what you need is right here. You've got the message. Pay a close attention to it. The spiritual drift is a real problem, and it's something we're really worried, we should really be worried about because many people don't realize the danger of spiritual drift until it's too late. You see, we don't pay attention to the instructions, the directions that we've been given. We either end up at the wrong port, or you run aground somewhere, or you get carried off by the current in somewhere you don't want to be. And all of those, when you're speaking of a ship, can be catastrophic. But the truth is, when you speak about a soul, they're even more dangerous. In verse 2 and verse 3, the author of Hebrews shows us the consequences and the dangers of being a spiritual drifter. He shows us the real danger of those who don't heed the warning of verse 1. And he says in verse 2, he starts, he sets up this question. And what he really does is kind of, this is almost a parental moment. Uh, In verse 2, he sets up this question that you know the answer to and everybody's going to agree to. And then verse 3, he does the parent thing and he drops the hammer on you. Okay, All right, so let's look at verse 2 because this is setting up the question that everybody's going to agree with. There's not really a question in verse 2. This is You're all supposed to just agree with this. In verse 2, he says, For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and and disobedience received a just punishment. So what he's describing here is the Mosaic Law, the Law of Moses, according to Acts chapter 7, verse 53. It was revealed by the direction of the angels. And so if this law was delivered, it was binding. Right? If it was, so this is, the, this is the, the give me. We all know that it was. Right? And then if you know that every transgression, which means that you intentionally went beyond the boundaries that were set for you, And every disobedience means you were told to do something and you didn't do it. If every one of those transgressions and disobedience were met with a just punishment, that God was right and justly and just to punish you for committing those sins, for doing things that you did that you shouldn't do or not doing things that you should have been doing all along. If he was right and just to do that. And that's the point we all agree. Everybody reading this passage is going to be like, yes, God sets the standard. Yes, God gave us the law. Yes, it is our job to follow the law. Yes, if we don't follow the law, then God has the just right and the right to to punish us. We all agree with that. We all know that's true. The Old Testament is sufficient in speaking to sin and punishment for sin. So there's no question in that every sin deserves punishment. Everyone acknowledges that that statement is true. And and there's no question. The question comes in verse 3. And this is where the hard question comes in verse 3. 
If all that's true, if you know that's true, verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If we turn our back, if we go in a different direction, if we drift away from the instructions and the directions that point us to Christ, then what hope do we have? Are we ever going to escape? Is there any possibility of escaping the punishment that we all agreed that we deserve because of our sin? You see, I want you to realize the danger that the author is talking about here is not just bad days coming in the future. He's not just warning that if you're drifting along that, that it's going to take you on a course and maybe there's going to be some hard days, maybe there's going to be some stormy weather, and maybe life's going to be difficult for you from time to time. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying this, that if you don't pay attention to the gospel, then, then you're going to be drifting along in life and you're going to miss the port altogether. The results of that are going to be catastrophic. He's not talking about bad days. He's talking about a bad eternity. He's talking about an eternity where you've turned your back on God and you said, I don't need God and I'm totally separated from God. And then eternity hits and all of a sudden you, that is your reality for the rest of eternity. He's talking about an eternity where you are separated from God because you neglected the truth. You neglected the gospel and you turned your back on Jesus, the one source of salvation. And at that point, there is no second chance. There's no, well, maybe I'll get it right next time, or maybe I'll, I'll get a second chance. If you neglect the gospel when it's given to you, if you neglect the one source of salvation, then all hope is lost for you. There is not just bad days. He's talking about bad eternity. That eternity is at stake here. The danger is real, and you need to realize before it's too late, before you get to the point of no escape, that the only hope you have is to pay close attention, even more attention to what you've heard about Jesus, the one who came and died in your place. Pay close attention to the one who died on the cross to take your punishments and take your sins for your transgressions and for your choices that you made. Pay close attention to that because if you miss that, if you neglect that, if you turn your back on that, there is no hope for you at all. You see, for many people, they look at the cross and it's just two pieces of wood that are nailed together. But I want to be clear, the cross is not just two pieces of wood nailed together. It is the lighthouse calling you to the port of salvation. It is the message and the instructions of this is the way home, and this is the only way that you're going to get home. The cross is the beacon of hope that shines in the darkness that guides you, not just in this life, but life everlasting. And if you neglect it, then there is no hope for you. If you neglect it and you drift past it, you are eternally lost and separated from God. If you neglect it, then you will not escape the punishment that you justly receive and that you honestly deserve. So pay close attention to the gospel message that you heard. Let it be your guide and your direction in life and don't neglect it. Because if you do, all hope is gone. And so some of you are sitting here this morning, you're like, well, how do I know that the gospel is true? How do I know that this is the message that I'm supposed to hold on to? What evidence is there that I can hold on to this clear message versus drifting from everything else? And I'm so glad that I don't have to give you the answer because the writer of Hebrews does that for me. He says there's three pieces of evidence that you need to see for the gospel. There's three things that I want to point out to you that the gospel is sufficient for what you have and for what you need. He says the first one is that the gospel is sufficient and it's, there's a clear evidence because it was premeditated by God Himself. It was God's idea and God is the one who told us about His plan long before we could ever see it. You see in verse 3, the first part of that is the question, which actually finishes verse 2. And so then he starts with the first piece of evidence after the question. He says, it, meaning the gospel plan and the gospel message, was first spoken by the Lord. 
You see, God's great plan of salvation didn't start on Christmas. It didn't start on Easter. God's great plan of salvation started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And some of you know this story very well, that Adam and Eve were given one rule, don't eat from this tree of this, or the fruit of this one tree. And yet they had everything else provided for them, yet they break this one rule. And God is right and God is just to punish them for not living up to His standards. We all just agreed to that. And so I want you to see that when God comes and He tells them this is the punishment for you breaking this rule, He's speaking to Adam and He's speaking to Eve and then He speaks to the servant. And when He speaks to them, He tells them this is the punishment. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, He starts to reveal the very beginning of His plan of salvation when He speaks to the servants. And He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And He will strike your head and you will strike His heel. You see, there was already a plan in place. God's already revealing part of His plan of salvation and redemption. There's going to be a child. There's going to be a, a, a descendant of this woman. And this promised one is going to come and He's going to step on or break the head or the neck of the serpent, but not before the serpent gets in a wound on the child himself. He's already telling you Right when sin entered the world, there's a plan to take care of the sin. And this same promised one is the same one we read about in Isaiah chapter 53, where he says, By his wounds we will be healed. By his trans- for your transgressions and for your sins, he is pierced and he is bruised. This same promised one that, that will heal us by taking our punishment is the same one that, that is spoken about in Matthew and in, in Luke. When John the Baptist is the final prophet, he proclaims that Jesus is the Lamb who will take away the sins of the world. You see, the gospel is trustworthy, not because... Michael told you it was, but because God told you it was. Because it was God's plan, and God has been speaking and revealing His plan to us throughout all history. And so if you can trust God, then you can trust His plan. If you can trust that God is true, and God cannot lie and will not lie, then you can trust His plan of salvation. The good news of Christ is trustworthy because God Himself is trustworthy. He cannot lie, and His plans do not fail. There is not a battle He's not going to win. And so if you believe that God is all that He says He is, then believe all that He says about what He does. The first piece of evidence of the gospel is not that Michael says it's true. It is simply that God Himself has spoken, and He's proclaimed it. But the case gets even stronger when we hear from the eyewitnesses of the people who heard and witnessed the gospel firsthand. You see, there's this great number of people who not only heard the message about Christ, but they saw it for themselves. And this adds validity to their story. We read on in chapter 2, verse 3, the writer says, It was first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard it. You see, Jesus' disciples, they traveled with him all the time. And time after time after time again, he tells them the cross is where I'm headed. Time after time after time, he tells them I'm headed to the cross and I'm going to die. And time after time, not only does he tell them he's going to die, but he tells them he's going to raise again on the third day. And, and you can read the Gospels from beginning to end. Time after time, they don't want to hear it because that's not their picture of Jesus. They don't want to hear it because they don't want to see Jesus suffering and dying like that. But he tells them over and over, this is the plan. We're not wavering from the plan. This is the direction. This is the instruction. This is the gospel message. This is what's going to happen. And over and over and over, he tells them. And so they listen to it. And these are the same men who saw him arrested in the garden. 
These are the same men who some of them saw him, but others heard about him being beaten in the courts of the Romans. Some of them saw him being crucified on the cross, but others heard about it because they took off running. But these are the same men who were gathered in an upper room after his death because they didn't know what to do. But these are the same men who later, three days later, went and saw an empty tomb where his body laid. And at that moment, they realized that everything he told them was true. That yes, he was going to die, and he did die. But when his death happened, he was going to take care of all of our sins, and he was going to prove that he could overcome sin and death because he was going to come back, and he was going to reveal himself and show himself alive again. He was going to be able to defeat death. And the moment they saw the empty tomb was the moment they realized it's all true. The message has been validated. And these men begin to share their stories. And they begin to tell the stories of what Jesus did and what Jesus taught them. And what Jesus had been doing for them and showing them all along. But I want you to understand, it wasn't just 12 men. Because 12 men you could dismiss pretty easy. But if we read on and through the book of uh, uh, 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says it's not just 12. There's a whole lot of people that saw this happen. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 6, Paul says, Then he appeared being Christ, to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. And Paul says there's over 500 people that saw him alive. They saw him die, and they saw him crucified. There's over 500 people that he appeared to, and they can testify that what they heard is true. They can testify they've seen him. And if you don't believe me, go ask them. Most of them are still alive. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I'm not a lawyer, and I don't hang out in courtrooms very often, but I've got to imagine that if a, a lawyer showed up with 500 witnesses then it seems like a pretty closed case to me. If a lawyer can present 500 eyewitnesses who all conglomerate the same story, who all say, yes, we saw the same thing, and they all agree on what happened and what they saw, it sounds like a pretty open and shut case for me. And Paul says, listen, if you don't believe the words of God, then go talk to these 500 witnesses who will tell you firsthand that Christ defeated death. Go listen to the stories that they tell you that Jesus really did pay for our sins and our sins are forgiven. Go ask them and they'll tell you about how his stripes brought you healing. They'll tell you about how they witness and testify to the fact that his story is true. And if you're going to question God's word, then understand his word. But listen to the confirmation of these witnesses. See, there's 500 of them. Go ask them. And then there's one other thing. If you're still skeptical about God's word and you're still skeptical about these 500 witnesses, then see the physical evidence that you have to consider. In verse 4, the writer tells us there wasn't only words that were spoken, but there were physical manifestations that happened. There were physical things, physical evidence that you can look at. And look with me in verse 4. He says, at the same time. God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distribution of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to His will. Now, the timing of this is very important, and we'll get to the timing issue here in just a minute. But at the time, the eyewitnesses were telling their stories that they heard, and Jesus is adding, or excuse me, God is adding His confirmation to their story. He's confirming, so He's re-upping the ante of what the truth is. So I want you to think about why this is important. I want you to kind of rewind yourself and put yourself in the first century of what's just happened. And there's this radical group of people who are talking about this Jesus who came and died for your sins. There's this radical group that's over here talking about how how God has stepped into earth and how he's interacted with humans and how that changes everything for us, how we can relate to God. And how do we know they are telling the truth? You see, they haven't written their stories 
yet they're just telling the stories. And so how do we know what they're telling us is true versus what the priest over here is telling us or what the rabbi is telling us? How do we know these guys are telling us the truth and we should plot our course by them versus everybody else in the world? And so God confirms their stories by allowing them to work miracles as well, by signs and wonders and miracles. Wonders are things that you cannot explain by natural situations. Miracles are a demonstration of power. And so he gives these apostles the ability to demonstrate the power that they have and demonstrate the authority they have. And so this message is very different than anything else. And so God validates their message through allowing them to work signs and wonders. And this is why in Peter, in Acts chapter 9, Peter's able to raise a young girl back to life. This is why in Paul, in Acts chapter 16, is able to command demons. But also in Acts chapter 19, verse 11, it says this, that God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands. God is validating the message that Paul is saying. God is confirming their words through signs and wonders. And he was confirming their message through these demonstrations and distributions of spiritual gifts. And so what Paul wrote, you can trust because you can see that God is working through Paul. What Peter wrote and what Peter said, you can trust because you can see that God is working through and in Peter's life. You can trust their words because it's evident that God is working in and through them. And He's given these signs and wonders and various miracles and distribution of gifts so that you can know that this is true. Now, I told you the timing of this verse is very important, so I want to make sure that we get this because it's extremely important in the context that we live in today. You see, the timing of this verse, in the very start of verse 4, says at the same time. Which means, not this time, it means at the time of the witnesses. At the time that people were, were sharing those first uh, generation Christians, the, those ones who were at the witnessing of, God, of Christ, these are the ones, at the same time that they were sharing the message, God was validating their message, that he was, he was validating what they were writing down in the direction of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to be clear that God is not telling us that we should be looking for signs and wonders to confirm his message now. And there's two reasons for that. First, the tense of the verbs in this verse do not allow for that to happen. Right? They do not constitute this continual action of these signs and wonders and gifts to continue. Right? So the verb construct of this verse, and, and we won't get into all that, but it doesn't allow for this continual action. But see, there's a second reason that that's so important, and that's more of a contextual reason. Because there are so many folks who are good, strong Christian folks who are looking for a new experience. They're looking for a new gift. They're looking for a, a, a new sign or a new wonder. What they're really looking for is confirmation that this is true. And so I want you to understand contextually what he's telling you here. That if you're looking for a gift, if you're looking for a sign or a wonder or a particular gift from the Holy Spirit to confirm the gospel message, then what you're telling me and what you're telling God is that what you gave me in your word is not sufficient. I need more evidence. You understand contextually why that is a problem? Because what you're saying is that you don't have a strong enough message here, God. I need more. I need, I need some kind of personal experience. I need a stronger and new message. I need something that will show up and show me this is what is right. You see, contextually, the problem with that thought is that's exactly what he's warning you about in the very first verse. You see, they were hoping for an extra experience. They were hoping and they were praying that angel would show up and confirm the message. And what does he tell them? 
Don't drift away from the message. The message is sufficient. You don't need some extra encounter. You don't need some extra gift. You don't need some signs and wonders. Hold on to what you have. It is sufficient to get you to where you need to go. And so you don't need something extra. You don't need this extra experience. You don't need these extra gifts. You don't need these signs, wonders. You don't need these angels to show up. What you need is to pay attention. Seek out what you already have rather than something new. You see, the Word of God is sufficient to give you the evidence and direction for salvation. The question is simply, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to set your course by the gospel message and sail life through it? Are you going to neglect His great salvation and hope to drift in the right direction? See, the choice this morning is really, really clear. Are you going to be directed are you going to be drifting? And to drift is to neglect the salvation. To drift is to neglect the opportunity to the gospel of Jesus Christ. To drift means that you give up all hope of getting where the, you need to be in the first place. So are you going to be directed or are you going to be drifting? Let's pray together.